Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the leaders here. And uh, it's a privilege to open God's Word with you. We're in Exodus chapter 8, verse 20. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Exodus chapter 8, verse 20. I don't know if you've read through the whole Bible before, um, but, but all throughout, if you look in it, if you read through every story, you might notice this particular habit, this thing that keeps coming up. The Lord says one thing is true, and people, even his own people, say something else is true. In other words, God and people often disagree. Here's a few examples. If you think about around the time that Jesus was serving in his earthly ministry, the, the world saw Jesus' disciples as outlaws, as enemies for following Jesus. But Jesus said, no, 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 you're my brothers. Years early, if you remember your history, uh, the Jews, God's people, were just relentlessly sinful against him. They just continued to turn to other things. And they viewed him as unworthy of their praise. But yet, the Lord called them his people. And even more, he said, I'm going to bring you a rescuer. And even before that, though Israel had viewed a terrible king named Saul as a person that they wanted to lead them, the Lord himself didn't agree. And instead, he chose a scrappy little guy named David. And he said, this is going to be your king. So there's just a few examples. People see things one way, and yet the Lord sees things, sees things another way. And uh, we often find that the, well, often, the Lord gets his way. Here's one more that might seem relevant. Though Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, said to Israel, you are my slaves, the Lord said, no, you're going to let my people go. In other words, they're not your people. They're my people. So here's a metaphor. When you think about that theme all throughout the Bible, here's a metaphor. I want you to get an image in your mind. I want you to imagine stormy skies. I want you to imagine wild animals all around you. Not like mean cats. I mean like tigers. And I want you to imagine that your job is to be in charge of sheep, but the sheep don't really like you very much. That's the Lord throughout history. He's shepherding his people. He's keeping them for himself, even though they disagree and the world seems fierce. He's a shepherd bent on delivering his sheep, even if it costs him his life. He's here to rescue his people. And in Exodus, we're near the beginning of that rescue plan. So everything we see here in these verses points ahead to the cross. This morning's sermon might seem a little similar to last week's sermon if you were here. It might appear that nothing new is happening. Last week, God brought plagues on Pharaoh and Egypt to send a message. And the message was, the Lord is the judge, not Pharaoh. Or is the judge. And this week, it's going to seem like the same thing is happening. More plagues, more Pharaoh not listening. 
But God's actually going to say something a little different this week. This week, he's going to distinguish Israel from Egypt. In other words, Pharaoh, you say one thing, but I say another. Egypt, you say, that's where Israel belongs. God says no. And this is actually your outline. The Lord separates his people. The Lord preserves his people. And the Lord vindicates his people. So last week we saw the Lord as judge. This week we're going to see him as a shepherd. Let's start in Exodus chapter 8, verses, verse 20. And I'm going to read through verse 31. As we look at the first plague in this new cycle. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and on the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen, and the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians." If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh. From his servants and from his people, not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit. What stands out about what the Lord says here? What's different? I think it's verse 22. But I will set apart my people. In other words, this plague and even the next two that we're going to read about, they're going to be broader and perhaps meaner and more painful. But there's going to be a little chunk of land and it's going to be exempt from that plague. Why? Well, it says, that Egypt will know that I'm the Lord in the midst of this land. Or some versions say, in this land. So what stands out about what Pharaoh says? Let me point out one unique exchange in verse 25. Pharaoh gives them a little slack. He says, okay, go worship. But he doesn't want Israel to leave. Or go too far. He wants him to stay and worship in Egypt. So he kind of barters with Moses. And if you remember, 
Moses just cut off their water supply. And Moses infested the land with frogs and gnats, heaps of them that died off and spread all kinds of lovely germs. And Pharaoh's bartering with this man. And what stands out about what Moses says here? He begins just like the last cycle of plagues. He goes to Pharaoh in the morning. He demands that Israel be allowed to leave. And he promises to intercede for the sake of relief for Egypt. How does that work out? How does Pharaoh respond? He says, don't go. So Moses says in verse 25, we must be separate. Our sacrifices would be an abomination. And here's what Moses is saying here. He's saying, our God is not like your gods. We must leave. We have to leave. We're not like you. But the result is the same. Pharaoh doesn't want Israel to be different. And so he doesn't keep his word even after Moses calls him on it in verse 30. What does all this mean? The Lord separates his people. He makes it a point to tell Pharaoh that his people are different. So the Lord literally wants them to stand out. Ryan and I were talking about this, and uh, Ryan made a really good point. He said, God's people at this time, when you look at them, they don't look separate, do they? Are they free people or are they slaves? They're slaves. Not people in debt for a house or a degree or a marriage to a non-believer. They are actual slaves. And God says, no, you're not, but it sure looks like they are, doesn't it? Presently, doesn't it seem like Egypt owns them? See, people think one thing, but the Lord has another plan. There's a better land for them, and it's outside of Egypt. This is actually a shadow of something a lot bigger. So how does this apply to us? Look forward to the promised land. There's a trigger warning because I'm about to get a, a little political here. promise I'll stop after Tuesday. Probably, probably not. <laughs> In a few days, a bunch of people are going to vote. And that seems a little different than when you read Exodus, right? Because it's not past tense. You're going to vote. And something's going to happen, and nobody really knows how it's going to play out. And so some of us, I think even in this room, are maybe a little bit nervous. Anybody a little bit nervous? Your person doesn't get elected? So um, we're worried America is maybe, uh, maybe done for, or maybe, um, maybe this is the beginning or the acceleration of that downfall. But one Christian said it this way. America is not the light of the world. The church is. America is not the light of the world. The church is. We're God's people. And Jesus has claimed us and separated us. 
And he said at the end of his earthly ministry, I am preparing a place for you. You know the way. It's through me. Here's what I'm getting at. Whether it's this election, or whether it's the hard neighborhood that you live in, or the hard country you live in, or um, maybe an oppressive professor, or spouse, or roommate, the answer is more than simply leave Egypt. Or in our case, move to Canada. The answer is the promised land. And it's coming. Hebrews 12 calls it a kingdom that won't be shaken. Jesus calls it not of this world. A place that moth and rust and flies will not destroy. This is a preview of that. And the Lord promises you're going to get there. Any anxiousness here is when you lose sight of there. Anytime you're anxious. But you have a shepherd and he has given his life to promise you a better land. Let's move on to point two. The Lord preserves his people. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 9 verses 1 through 7. So we're going to see the next plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord sent a time saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And he did not let the people go. Well, at least Pharaoh has given me more to talk about. I'll give him that. So what stands out about what the Lord says here? Does anything change? Well, now, now, now death actually comes into play. Before it was just flies that ruin crops. And that can lead to death. But look at verse 3. There's a a plague of sickness promises that kills off all livestock, major food supply. But look at verse 4. Yet the Lord, again, is doing it to make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. The animals of Israel will be spared. There's no condition this time, notice. It's just going to happen. Now, um, quick pause. Has anyone in this room ever been sick before? Maybe this week? Maybe this morning? I have. And some of you, everybody around you gets sick, but you don't. That ever happened? That happens occasionally. You've dodged bullets. 
Some of you guys, you got your go-tos, got your vitamin C, got your sleep it off, if you don't have children. Bathe in hand sanitizer, it's all over. Here's reality. Those of you who dodge those bullets don't have kids. <laughs> because children eat things that should not be eaten, and they touch things that should not be touched, and then they touch you. <laughs> and I've, I've dodged the occasional bullet. But it's never been because of my effort. It seems that way. Sometimes I do all my favorite stuff and it still happens, right? It's quite literally the hand of God. Now how much worse, bear with me here for a minute, how much worse when, when rather than children who can be taught and reasoned with to not touch everything, instead of that you have animals. Those animals are done for. You see dogs and cats and they just they can't keep to themselves. There's no there's no vet here. There's no there's no medicine in the, and these things, even those things, the vitamin C, the hand sanitizer, the vet, the doctor those things, they only do so much. Every animal should die when a plague comes. This is not a head cold. This is a plague. Yet every animal among Israel is spared. Not some of them. Every one. This is like taking, say if you just put a hundred people in this room and you just mashed them all right in the center and they stood next to each other. And then you took the roof off and you moved a swimming pool in it that was full of water and you just turned that upside down. And everybody is soaked. Except for five people and they didn't get a drop on them. How does that happen? That's not a hand sanitizer or an umbrella. That is quite literally the hand of God. That's how sickness works. That's preservation. That's what preservation means. When you are set apart and you are preserved, your life is spared. And I wanted to take all that time to make that point to help you see one bigger point, And that's what all this here means in the second point. The Lord preserves his people. Only he can. Though everyone around them might die, they would be spared. But not because of their effort. Because of the Lord's mercy. He set them apart. Do you maybe see a little gospel connection here? I kind of do. Does that sound like Jesus? So how does this apply? Look at your second point. Look forward to everlasting life. Look forward to everlasting life. I mean that. Because many of you and your family and friends have suffered and some have died because of things like sickness. Or maybe the pain was just brought to them externally. They received the physical pain of persecution if you've ever been overseas. Or it happens in America every now and then. Here's my point. That's okay. 
Now you might think, wait a second, Dan. You just said the swimming pool gets flipped over and a few people stay dry. Doesn't that mean I should live healthy? Doesn't that mean I should be preserved, right? Doesn't God want His people to be set apart? Shouldn't I be comfortable? Not at all. Again, this is a uh, bit of a metaphor. It's a bit of a shadow that points ahead to something bigger. Here's what I mean. The Lord is not going to spare your earthly body because it couldn't take eternity. A year or so back, I preached on that. It was 1 Corinthians 15. When the Lord calls you to a new heaven and a new earth, your body will literally be spotless and it won't be by your work. He will literally preserve you until He comes back and you live forever. So, every sickness here prepares you for a future when that's no longer true. And it's by the Lord's mercy. And here's the crazy thing about that. Here's one reason I think you should look, look forward to everlasting life. It's because when you get to heaven, everybody is spotless except for one person. And it's Jesus. Did you ever stop to think about that? Remember when he was raised up? He had little holes in his hands. A reminder of the cross. He keep, that was his new body. He keeps those. Holes where the nails went through. The only person that's going to be not spotless in heaven is Jesus. And you know what? Because of that, he's going to be the most beautiful one in the place. It's a reminder that he, the shepherd, died to save the flock. It's a reminder that preservation costs something. He died to preserve his flock, not from earthly death or discomfort, but rather to preserve you for eternity. So in other words, people can kill you, they take your head off, you get a new one. And if you still struggle to be okay with that, just hang with me on the last point. I'm going to read about the third plague. Verses 8 through 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So what does the Lord say here? He just says, bring the plague. Boils and sores. That's it. Then it happens. What does Pharaoh say? Nothing. And for good reason. Everybody in Egypt gets struck down by this disease. So something's moved and it's beyond livestock. Now actual people are getting hit. And we can assume, though it's not totally overt in the text, we can assume that Israel is unaffected because we know Moses is unaffected. So in other words, they're set apart again. But look at verse 11. I think this is significant. Even the magicians who in last week's text 
They called the final plague in that cycle the finger of God. They seemed to kind of relent from their hard-heartedness, and they seemed to uh, admit that Jesus is Lord, and they get struck down. Anybody, would anybody give them a free pass, maybe, for their little, they prayed the prayer right back there or something? I would have probably given them one. But they get struck down. That might seem unfair, but if you read the next verse, you realize it's very much fair. In fact, I think it's what all this means. It's that often re- repeated phrase, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. In other words, the Lord softens and hardens hearts. In other words, if you come to know Him, it's not because you like finally figured out that He's the Lord. From your perspective, that's what it looks like. But He made you figure it out. Who gave you the brain? What do we bring? We don't bring anything. Who, who gave you the breath that enabled you to say the words out of a voice box that you didn't make up to pray? It's all the Lord. So the Lord softens and hardens heart. And the magicians here, I think, it's because they're still hardened. Because they're still attempting to stand before Pharaoh as allies. So what's happening? The Lord, I, I think, is delivering, in a sense, vindication on a deeper level than you and I are capable of. Because their problem is so much deeper than boils on the skin, right? It's so much deeper than the skin. You might say it goes all the way to the heart. This is about the hearts of the people of Egypt. And those hearts are in far worse shape than the skin on their bodies will ever be. Let me boil it down. I I think here with this plague, the Lord is simply giving rebellious people a preview of the logical end of their desires. I think the Lord is giving them a preview of the logical end of their desires. In other words, their hope is in this earth. What happens at the end of their life? Their bodies dry up like the Nile. They decay. Everything around them dies. All the Lord has done here is shepherded them to the land in which they want to dwell. All the Lord has done here is given them what they want. So when you struggle, you think, you know, my mom, my brother, my cousin, my friend, they just don't want the Lord. And then at the end of their life, they wonder why they're so sad. That is the logical end of their heart's desire. What is their hope? For the Lord to soften their hearts. That's the only thing you hope for. So, in other words, you go out next week and you're knocking on some doors, right? And you probably think, oh, I've got to come with the apologetics. You know, I'm going to come with like my ten life verses. You know, I'm going to come with those. And they're going to pray the prayer right there. Maybe... Probably not. The best thing you can do is pray that the Lord softens their heart. 
Do it now. Because the Lord can start working right now. Even before you knock. You're just a small part of that. But the Lord lets you be a part of that. So Israel is different. They're set apart. They're preserved. And and their Jesus is, in some ways, they're set apart whether they like it or not. And so it is with us. Because when you go around the houses, you will probably get at least one funny look. And if not, you'll probably like, like read in too much to what they're saying and assume they're looking at you funny. And so it is with us. The world will see us as crazy. They'll say we believe in an invisible sky wizard and we blindly follow old, dead folk stories that are no longer true. And they'll hurt us and they'll call us outcasts or they'll make us outcasts and they should because we are. We are. You're not really home here. The whole world is Egypt. You might say. But you've got an unshakable kingdom. And Jesus himself is leading you to it. That's point one. And so you can... And so he's, he's guaranteeing your preservation so that you will guaranteed to be arriving there. That's point two. So Jesus is leading you, point one. He's guaranteeing your preservation so you get there, point two. And so you can trust him to vindicate you from your enemies because if you love, love the Lord, you will have them. If you don't have any, you might not. That's point three. It's your final application. Look forward to the Lord's vengeance. I'm going to explain that one. It doesn't sound very nice. Look forward to the Lord's vengeance. I don't mean clap as people run to hell. Don't give them a Gatorade as they're running. Anytime you spit venom at somebody, that's what you're doing. I mean, look forward to the day when the Lord says, that's enough. And he calls his people home. And in the meantime, what you do now in preparation for that is you humbly plead with people to trust the Lord. And if that means death, so be it. So go knock on doors. Plead with people. Invite them. So in other words, you're not the Westboro Baptist Church. You're not picketing funerals, yelling at sinners, but you're also not a universalist who undercuts sin. You're in the middle. In short, you're in the world, but you're not of it. That's how you can look forward to the Lord's vengeance. Realize that you don't really get vengeance here, and that's okay. So how can we know if we're doing this? Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I go knock on doors and I think I'm doing it right, and then somebody comes up later and they're just like, mm. and I'm like, wait, what? No, I was trying. Stop. So how do we know if we're doing this correctly? I think the key to look for the key to looking forward to the Lord's future vengeance correctly is to look backward 
to the cross. Because that's where the Lord's ultimate wrath was vindicated. In other words, the Lord's wrath was poured out fully on the shepherd, it's Jesus, who was without sin and crushed so that you, the sheep, might be delivered. Not by your doing. You didn't dodge the bullet. Christ took it for you. That's what keeps us humble, yet longing for the Lord's vengeance. Our enemies are not really our enemies. They're his enemies. And he can take care of himself. That's why we plead with people instead of punching them. That's why we pray for our enemies. That's not a metaphor. Pray for your enemies. The Lord is our shepherd. He separates us, promising us a better land even while we toil in this land. He preserves us, guaranteeing us eternal life that we might live this one with an open hand. And he vindicates first and foremost on the cross. First and foremost on the cross. But finally on that day when the Lord returns and his sheep go home. That's why we take communion. It's the reminder every day that our penalty has been paid. So that when we go out there, we go out there correctly. Because we realize, what did I bring to the table? What did I bring to this table? I know, I know the communion people set it up. They did a great job. I know. But what did we bring to what this represents? We brought nothing. Jesus brought everything. We're going to take communion now. What that means is if you call the Lord Lord, if he's your Savior and your Lord, come. It means you take bread, juice, you return to your seat, and we partake together. If you're not, if you're not a believer, do not. If you're struggling deeply with whether or not Jesus is Lord, do not remain after you seat. Because when you take this, you're proclaiming to everybody, the Lord is the Lord.